0: Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Eric. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, See, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who follow shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone.
1: I am Tom. Thank you. As I was um, preparing this morning, getting ready for the message today, God laid something on my heart that, that I think I want to share with you, and that is I grew up in a tradition where we didn't really make much of Holy Week. Um, it might seem odd, but I grew up in a church where it seemed like kind of a Catholic thing to do all of that stuff. And, we celebrated Easter, and Easter was a big thing, but you know, we, I can't ever remember having a good Friday service or anything like that, or even, you know, the preparation coming out of Palm Sunday or anything. And um, as I look back on that, I think that's strange. but in their defense, they did a lot of good things. Fifty years from now, all these little babies that are born here right now are going to look back and say, "You know, AGC." They didn't do this or that, so I'm going to give them some grace on that. But as, as we come today to Palm Sunday, I was just thinking how important it is to reflect. And my encouragement to you this week would be to spend some time between Matthew 21 and Matthew 28 and just, just read it and meditate on it and pray over it and think about it. I was, this year really moved to do something uh, that I hadn't done. Uh, Many of you know my story and that my first wife, Pam, died 10 years ago of cancer. And that Dina, my my wife now, her husband, Patrick, died 10 years ago, December 26th. And this year, being the 10-year mark, we both separately just took some time, a few days to go, and to remember and to grieve and to do all of that, not really knowing why or what it was gonna be about or anything, but what I learned from that experience was it was a great time to remember some of the important things of that relationship, some of the things that formed me into the person that I am today, and also to grieve over the loss, again, because it was so good. And I think as we think about the Passion Week, it's good for us to go back and see what God did and to see what it was and why it was so important and what he went through, and to genuinely grieve over the cost of sin that he had to pay for us. I think the more that we spend time there, the more it's going to impact our gratitude for what he has done for us. And so that would be my encouragement for you this week is to spend some time there praying over it, meditating on it, studying it. And uh, I think that you'll find that it will have benefits more than what you can plan for. So this morning as we move into Matthew chapter 21, like Parker said, we're kind of picking up from the Sermon on the Mount, going to the end of the story. And so as Jesus is moving into Jerusalem at the end of his ministry here, I think it's important for us to understand that throughout the book of Matthew, as we have seen in the beginning, Matthew has set up the kingdom of heaven over against the kingdom of earth and we we've got the little Venn diagram that we we've seen over and over again that the two circles that intersect and where they intersect is where the kingdom of God came down and intersected with the kingdom of earth and so I put the labels on that I've got a a new slide there you go so that whole circle on the top is the kingdom of heaven and that whole circle on the bottom is the kingdom of earth they're two separate kingdoms that came together Matthew 21 is one of these places where these two kingdoms really collide. Throughout the book of Matthew, they've kind of bumped into each other and that the Pharisees would question him and all of these things, but this is where they really full-on collide. And so I think what's important for us to do today, before we even get into the text, is to more fully understand what both of these kingdoms are. And so what I'd like to do is to define what both of these kingdoms are, reveal the characteristics inherent in each kingdom, identify who populates each kingdom, and then we're gonna look at the collision of the two kingdoms and then our response to that. And so, as we set the scene, as Parker had said, this is Jerusalem, this is a time of Passover, and now Jesus is coming, and the city is swollen there's a lot going on a lot of hubbub going on and now here comes jesus with his contingency so jesus represents the kingdom of heaven so the kingdom of heaven is used by matthew that phrase is used by matthew over 30 times exclusively he's the only one that uses it but he also uses the term kingdom and kingdom of god and he refers to kingdom over and over and over again. Kingdom is the theme that Matthew keeps hammering, all right? And so as we look at that, it starts back in Matthew 3:2 when John the Baptist is making the way for Jesus, and he said, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. In Matthew 4, 23, it says, now Jesus began to go all over Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Matthew 9:35 says Jesus continued going all over the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. So what is the kingdom of heaven? You know, you may think well it's it's heaven. It's a place that you go. But the kingdom of heaven is actually the spiritual realm over which God reigns as king. It's not a physical place that we go to, it's the presence of God's holiness, authority, and power. Last week, Parker put up a slide from RT France that I thought was really good, so we'll, we'll use it again. It says, to enter the kingdom of heaven does not mean that you go to a place called heaven, but to come under God's rule. To become one of those who recognize his kingship and live by its standards. To be God's true people. So just think about that. To be God's true people is to place yourself under the authority and the rule of God. So if that's a definition of the kingdom of heaven, what are the characteristics of the kingdom of heaven? As you think about the kingdom of heaven, I would say that there's one main characteristic of the kingdom of heaven. And John, or uh, yeah, John said it in uh, chapter uh, 14, six. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The main characteristic of the kingdom of heaven is life. God brings life where there is no life. The kingdom of heaven is the only place to find life God is life that's what it looks like so if if the kingdom of heaven is about life well what does that life look like how do I recognize it what do I know what it is well the good news is Galatians chapter 5 spells it out he said this is what life looks like it's called the fruit of the spirit but it's also the the kingdom of heaven and in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 you some of you have probably read it says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, this isn't a list of things that you need to master, okay? That's the good news. You're not going to sit there and say, okay, I'm good on some of them, but boy, that patience one I got to work on that. But rather, this is the character of God, And as the people of God submitted to the authority of God, we need to submit to God's control in all areas of our life. So rather on working to be more humble, what I need to do is work to see God more clearly and to understand God more fully so that when somebody nicks me, what comes out is joy. What comes out of me is peace. What comes out of me is, is the, the love of God. This is not something that I can create. It's not something that I can generate, and it's not something that I can master. These are the attributes of God. And for the child of God that has the Spirit of God within us, the good news is we are empowered through God's Spirit to be the channel of that to the world. And God's people said, I know that you've, you've experienced, God's people, that, that you just sense something about them and you're drawn to them because it seems like they have just been sitting with God and you want to sit with them, right? That's <clears throat> what the characteristics look like of the kingdom of God. So who populates the kingdom of God? Who who populates the kingdom of heaven? Well, that's God, obviously, and all those who have surrendered to him, people who truly believe that he is the Messiah and have surrendered everything to follow him. This life is evidenced, not earned, but evidenced by the works of righteousness, not just righteous works so who are some examples some examples would be the disciples we've read about that in the beginning of Matthew how that Jesus was coming along and he said come and follow me and immediately they dropped their nets they left their boats they left their livelihood they left their family and they followed him Another example would be Moses in the Old Testament when God said, I want you to come lead my people out of Egypt. And Moses' first response was, who am I? Moses did not feel up to the job, but he believed God and he obeyed God and he submitted to the authority of God and he did what God wanted him to do. Another one would be Abraham. You remember Abraham God had promised to make great nations out of him, and yet he had no kids. And then he had Isaac, his son of promise. And what did God do? He said, I want you to take your son Isaac up on the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice. And what did Abraham do? He gathered up the wood. He trusted God. You know, Abraham did not begin to understand how any of this was possible, how any of it made sense. But he knew one thing. God was always right, and I can trust him, and if this is what God is telling me to do, I am going to do this. And I think it's interesting that as Isaac is going along with the program, he says, hey, dad, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Well, Abraham says to him, don't worry, God will provide. And God did. These are, these are people who evidence a faith in God that went beyond just, I believe in God. But their life was ruled by that faith and when God asked them to do something, they immediately obeyed. That's a challenge to me. A lot of times I wanna understand before I, get, I act. And I think a lot of us are that way because we have so much information in our life. I want more information before I can make that decision instead of Immediately, immediately obeying the way that these guys did. The population of the kingdom of, <clears throat> of heaven understands it by submitting to God as their Lord and their Messiah, they are surrendering control they have over their destiny. They're surrendering control that they have over their destiny. That's a big thing. Because each of us, I don't care if you're 18 or 80, You've got an idea about your life and where it's going and what it's going to look like. And when you come under the authority of God, you're saying, God, here here is my destiny. Here is my dreams. Here are my hopes. Here are my plans. Here is everything. It's yours. Do with it what you will. And in theory, that might sound easy, but in practice, it's very hard. If you have a gifting and an ability to be very financially successful. And God says, but what I really want from you is to go do this. And by the way, you're gonna struggle with poverty your whole life. That's a hard choice to make. And yet the people who understand the authority of God in their life, gladly say, God, if this is what you have for me, I will sacrifice my destiny and follow you because I know that that is far better than anything that I could create out of this life on my own. In essence, you can think of the fact that as people who are under the authority of God, we live rented lives. This is a flawed analogy, I'll admit that. If you've rented a house and you want to have a party, you have to go look at the rental contract and find out if it's okay. And if it's vague, you go to the owner of the house and ask permission to see if you could do that, because it's not your house, right? You don't have the authority to make that decision because it's not your house. Romans chapter 12 says in verse 1, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. What he's saying here is offer your life as a sacrifice to God. God, my life is your life. You do with it what you will. The inhabitants of the kingdom of heaven have gladly exchanged their earthly lives to God for the eternal lives that he has prepared for us so that we can live with him forever. The people who populate the kingdom of heaven now are not perfect because we still live in the sin-cursed world, but we have the power of the Spirit of God within us to overcome sin and to choose righteousness. You know, it's easy for us to get frustrated with ourselves, isn't it, when we fall, when we sin, We heard the angst of the Apostle Paul who called himself the the chief of sinners. He struggled with that, and yet the reality is with the Spirit of God living within us, we are not slaves to sin. We have power over sin, and sin can become more of a thing of our past. I've lived long enough to see it in my own life. Those of you who know me know I am far from sinlessly perfect, but if you knew me when I was 20 and you came and you saw me today, you would see something different. And that's not me. That's the faithfulness of God. And so the children of God have the ability through the power of the Spirit of God to have victory over sin. When God says, be righteous as I am righteous, it's not an impossible command. He has empowered us to do that. And we can live in the joy of knowing that sin does not have power over us. There is no sin that God can't give you victory over. Do you believe that? As a child of God, the Spirit of God that lives within you can give you the power to get victory over every area of your life. So the kingdom of heaven is the spiritual realm over which God reigns as king. The characteristic of the kingdom of heaven is life population of the kingdom of heaven is those who have surrendered their lives to him as their messiah and their king the other kingdom is the kingdom of earth And this is what matthew talks about these two kingdoms the kingdom of earth is defined as the world infected with sin and separated from god a dark and a very scary place the characteristic, the main characteristic of the kingdom of earth is death. If the main characteristic of the kingdom of heaven is life, the main characteristic of the kingdom of earth is death. Think about that. People who don't know God live in this area. Now, the kingdom of earth is Satan's playground. Let's, let's be clear about who Satan is. Satan is not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. He's not God, but he's very powerful. and He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, to confuse, to tear down, to, to confront, and to just frustrate. Satan is actively at work trying to destroy everything that he can. So, who populates the kingdom of earth? Anyone who has rejected God and his plan, period. Anyone who has rejected God. And you say, well, that seems like an active thing. Well, if you haven't accepted and surrendered your life to the authority of King Jesus, then you're living in the kingdom of the earth. They have no king. The inhabitants of the kingdom of earth have no king. They don't have King Jesus. Satan is not a king. So they are left, according to Judges 21, where it says in those days there was no king in Israel, so everybody did whatever seemed right to him. In Proverbs 14, it says, There is a way that seems right to a person. The kingdom of earth... Perform righteous acts. They can perform righteous acts, but not acts of righteousness. The difference being righteous acts are just doing right things. Uh, acts of righteousness are prompted by the Spirit of God, and you're the conduit of what God is doing in the world. There's, there's an eternal difference between those two. And yet, from the eye's point of view, it's difficult to discern the two. Righteous acts can be performed in your strength, under your control, at your timing, and submitted to your will. And they can have nothing to do with God's will. So there are a lot of people that are out there doing righteous acts, but they're not submitted to God's authority. They're doing that under their own authority. People in the kingdom of earth have no power to perform acts of righteousness because those acts are submitted to the full authority of God in your life. A person doing righteous acts can be motivated by guilt, by a desire to be seen as a good person, or possibly even a genuine compassion and love for your fellow man. It can look very much like acts of righteousness, but it's not. It's just you doing what you do. The scary thing is in the book of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, it talks about these people, and we've read this before. But in Matthew 7 and starting in verse 21, it says, and it's, it's not on the screen, so just, just listen. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those, who only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? and drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name, then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. We did these things. Well, yeah, you did them in your strength, in your will, and in your timing, and under your authority. You did not submit to me and do what I wanted you to do. So even though you did things that were very much similar to what I would have wanted to do, you didn't submit to me and I never knew you. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever we sow is what we're going to reap. If we refuse to bow the knee to the authority of God and think that we can do enough good things to earn his pleasure, we are deceived. So the kingdom of earth is defined by a kingdom that is infected by sin and separated by God. The characteristic of the kingdom of earth is death. And the population of the kingdom of earth are those who have rejected God and his plan. So those are the two kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. And now, finally, we get to our passage where these two kingdoms come together and collide. Now, know that, as we've already said, Jerusalem is at the point of the Passover. So, Jerusalem is, you get all kinds of numbers, but let's just use these numbers for today, okay? Let's say Jerusalem is 30,000 people normally. During the Passover, people come from all over the countryside into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and it could swell to 180,000. That's population times six. The city is full. Imagine Ankeny for one week with 420,000 people in this city. Can you imagine what that would be like? That's, that's what Jerusalem was like at this time. So it was packed. It was full. And so as the city is full, here comes this big, band of people now before they get to Jerusalem they stop at this little town called Bethpage and that's where Jesus tells them to go out and to get the donkey and uh, the reason that he did that was the fulfillment of prophecy and we know that in uh, in Isaiah chapter 62 is where it says the first one and now we're in verse 9 of Matthew 21 where it, it says hosanna to the high, uh, hosanna the son of david blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord hosanna the highest now let's go back to verse five i had that wrong verse five tell daughter zion this is a direct quote from isaiah 62 but the rest of this is from zechariah 9, chapter 9 where it says see your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt the foal of a donkey." Why that's significant is that Zechariah chapter 9 is well known to the Jewish people. And it's very important because it talks about Yahweh. And what it says is Yahweh will save his people, that he is Zion's king, that he will have a crown, he's a great warrior. And then Zechariah 14 says he will become king over all the earth and all the nations will come to Zion to worship the king the Lord of Hosts. That Yahweh language, that God language, the reason that Matthew thought it so important to put it in here, was he is applying that Yahweh to Jesus. And so that is important language that we understand that Matthew is ascribing to Jesus. So as he is coming, he's fulfilling prophecy He's at the end of his ministry, which started up in Capernaum and Galilee at the very beginning. And as they went down, his ministry grew. And the number of people around him grew. And the the fame of what was going on became more well-known to the point that when he got down to Jerusalem, he had an enormous crowd. It's like a gigantic crowd with him. And as I was thinking about that, it brought to my mind Ezekiel chapter 47. It's the vision that Ezekiel had about the river of life. And maybe you've heard of this, maybe you haven't. But it is amazing where Ezekiel is standing there at the temple and there's a trickle of water coming out of the temple. And as it gets further and further away, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger into a river. And this is what Ezekiel 47 says. Starting in verse 6, it says, He asked me, the Lord asked me, do you see this, son of man? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. And when I had returned, I saw a large number of trees along both sides of the river bank. He said to me, the water flows out of the eastern region and goes down to Arabah. When it enters the sea, the sea of foul water, this is the dead sea, the water of the sea becomes fresh. It will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And there will be very many fish for these waters, for where, for these waters go there and the others become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. So the river of life flows into the Dead Sea and what does it bring? life as a river is flowing what's happening trees are growing life is happening Jesus' ministry was like that in that as he came out of Capernaum and he started his ministry he bumped into people that were blind and sick and dying and he healed them and he brought life and he brought hope so much that even the lady that just touched the hem of his garment was healed the kingdom of heaven his life and as he moved through the region it was like life moving through a dead place he brought life to it and it did so much that there was this enormous crowd now and they're following Jesus riding on the donkey coming into Jerusalem and these two worlds are about to collide imagine if you would You're one of these Jewish people in Jerusalem and you're with your family, you're with your friends, you're excited, you're doing all the little things that you're supposed to be doing in preparation for the Passover and everything just seems right. It's comfortable, it's what you've been taught, it's what you know. There's a lot of sentimentality around it, there's a lot of nostalgia, It just everything about it seems right, it seems good, it seems holy because you're there to celebrate the Passover. And then, in the distance, here comes this dirty crowd making all of this noise, yelling and singing, and I hear them singing one of the Hallel songs, Psalm 18, and I'm thinking, hey, that's our music. Why are those people singing our music? And they started to get really, really upset about that. And watching this crowd come in, can you put yourself in their shoes and think, what must that have been like? So there are two crowds, and this is important to understand as we look at the text. The one crowd was the crowd that was with Jesus. Those are the ones that laid their coats on the donkey they're the ones that threw it in front of the donkey they're the ones that are shouting they're the ones that are singing the other group are the ones that are looking at this group and they're saying who is this and you can't really blame them can you I mean this isn't a normal thing Normally, when they get together for the Passover, it's very serious and somber, and, and it's very laid out, it's very orally, and all that stuff. And here comes this group of misfits, this group of paralytics, of blind, of unclean, of demon-possessed, that used to be crippled, all of those things. These are the outcasts, okay? These are the marginalized and the fringe people that God has healed and God has... Uh, brought to life and they are with him and they are enthusiastic and there are a lot of them and so they are yelling and they're chanting and they are singing now one of the things to note is that they are calling him the prophet when they said who is this guy they said this is the prophet jesus of nazareth they're giving him a, a title of deity basically saying he's a king. Now Jerusalem at this point is, is under Roman rule. And for somebody to say that they're the king is a kind of a big deal. And it really got their attention. They, this is not a good thing. Not only that, but the Jewish people would say, if there's going to be a king over us, it's not going to be this carpenter from Galilee and Nazareth. It's going to be a Herodian king. You know, when Jesus was born, it was Herod Augustus. And now his son, Herod Antipasus. Archibus? Yeah, something like that. If we're going to have a king, it's not going to be you, right? And so all of that to say, what they were doing was offensive to the people in Jerusalem. And they didn't like what was going on. The crowd was upset. So, what happens in verse 12? They've reached the edge of the city, and what happens then? It'd help if I was on the right page. Jesus went into the temple and threw out all those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer but you were making it a den of thieves. So not only did they have this offensive crowd that was running up and doing all of this, but now he goes right into the temple and he starts throwing things over and doing all of this and quoting Jeremiah to them when he says, my house will be a house of prayer, Jeremiah seven eleven. He's in there disrupting what they're doing and quoting scripture to them. This is two worlds combining the kingdom of heaven coming into the kingdom of earth. Now we're going to continue on from there obviously next week and see where it goes from there. You know where it goes from there. Jesus knew at this point where it was going from here. But the question that we have to ask for ourselves then is what is what should the response be? Well there are two responses. Both for the people in Jerusalem that are confronted by the kingdom of heaven, by Jesus, and for us this morning as we are confronted by the reality of the kingdom of heaven and Jesus. The first response could be and should be to accept Jesus as Messiah, surrender your life to his lordship, and follow him. He is God, he is the King, he is the Messiah. The second response is anything else. Either you're submitting to his kingship, his lordship, his messiahship, or you're not. Anything else, there is no negotiation. There is no, I'll believe in you and I'll do the righteous acts that you say. But I want to have a say on where my life goes. There's nothing like that. Either we're submitting to the authority of God or not. God is the one that's in control of our life. He's the one that tells us what to do. God says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. How are you doing at keeping your heart? God says, pray without ceasing. How's your prayer life? God says, in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Are you submitting your life decisions to the counsel of godly friends? God says, consider the needs of others as more important than yourself. How are you doing at considering the needs of others as more important than yourself? Again, this is not something that you are to work up. This is God flowing through you. What we are to do is to submit our will to his will because he is the owner of our life he has purchased us and so i would just say don't assume because you look like a christian on the outside that you are the pharisees looked perfect completely white and yet on the inside they were completely dead so here's a fun question for you like the the, the river of life out of Ezekiel. Have you ever experienced as you flow through your life that your life brings life to the people you meet? Because the Spirit of God is living inside of you. Life is in you. Have you experienced as you go through your life that your life brings life to those who are around you and they seek you out what they don't realize is they're not really seeking you out they're seeking God because God is flowing through you and it's impacting them you say well here and there whatever the encouragement is is that the more that we submit ourselves to the authority of God the more that God is going to be able to flow through us and the more life God is going to be able to generate through our lives, and that is what we want. So I've thrown a lot of questions out, a lot of things for you to consider, but in closing, I would just like to say, consider what the evidence of your life tells you about what kingdom you're living in. Now, we've done a lot of diagnostic work about what is the kingdom of heaven and what is the kingdom of earth. As you look at the evidence of your life as it is lived today, does it point to the fact that you are living in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of earth? What I'd like to do is to just give us some time to think on that And to pray over that. And we all know that this is a process of sanctification, that we become more and more submitted to God and more and more like him. So it's not meant to make anybody feel guilty about anything, but an encouragement that the more that we surrender to him, the more that he is going to work through us. So what I'd ask is just take a couple minutes right now and pray. And then I'll close us in prayer, and then we'll go to the communion table. So pray pray to yourself right now.
0: Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at or you can find us on social media at inconygospel.